Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. My guest today is the German ambassador to Ireland, Dyke Potzel, who took up the role last November for a fixed term of four years. Her Excellency has been touring the country since then, determined to learn about Ireland from the Irish people and to teach us a thing or two about Germany while she's at it. And no better woman. The ambassador who has been stationed in Singapore and Tehran in the past is a very interesting woman, having grown up in East Berlin before the wall came down in 1989 when she was 21 years old. We spoke a lot about that and about how life for women in the East was very different to the West, and very interestingly so, as you'll hear. We spoke about the recent referendum on the Eighth Amendment and Germany's abortion laws before delving into Brexit, the rise of the far right, immigration, and Germany's role in Ireland's austerity after the collapse of the banking system. Just a few light topics you know yourself. Your Excellency, we are delighted to have you in here this morning. You're not on holidays in August, which is also a good sign in a person. I watched you on YouTube yesterday and you have great facility with the Irish language. Well, Thank you very much and thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Um, And uh, well, I try to learn some Irish, but I'm still in the process, let me say, (laughs) like this. Uh, But I would love to um, improve my Irish, really. I'm very fond of languages, and I think it's beautiful language, albeit very difficult, I have to say. But uh, no, it's great fun. Are you are you learning off the internet or are you going for classes? Well, I went for classes, um, but then the last few weeks have been very, very busy. So I had to stop a little, but I really want to go back for classes. And then I also would love to go to the Geiltacht for like, you know, a week or two for some of the courses there and live with the family. Um, but uh, actually, I wanted to do it this year already, but things turned out so busy so that I postponed it for next year. And I really hope that I can do it next year. I hope you can too. We we usually go when we're 15 and it's a rite of passage here, as you know, actually 11 or 12. Um, you actually began your grown up life by studying languages. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was that was in East Berlin. So tell us a bit about gro- those, those growing up years in East Berlin and what it felt like. Mm. Well, it, it actually, um, as a child, was in a way um, a very normal life. On the other hand, it wasn't. A normal life in the sense that, you know, I went to school, I had friends, um, I had a sports class, my parents had a sailing boat, we had a house, um, I went to discos and partied all night and uh, went abroad for trips in the socialist area, uh, in the socialist countries. Um, so it was in a way, you know, a normal upbringing. We had enough food, we had enough clothes, we had everything basically. On the other hand, it was not Um, very typical at all if you compare it with our societies, Western societies now, because the immense lack of freedom um, that we 
experienced um, basically went into every little layer of life. So even when I was very small, um, my parents told me whom to tell what, you know, to whom to be open, whom not to talk to, to be very careful to not tell people what we watch on television um, outside the house, only like very close friends. I remember in our sports club, we had... Um, a television there and then the the young ones we would gather around the television but one would always be at the door watching out for some communist party member to come around and then we would quickly uh, change the channel to east german television because it was forbidden to watch west german television so you learned in very early years to basically like speak with two languages one with friends very close friends you trusted um and within the family and then another language um on the outside um, and uh, then again, obviously, we weren't allowed to travel freely. Um, as I said, you know, I mean, the whole Western world was closed off for us. Mm. Um, West Berlin, I was brought up in, in brought up in East Berlin, but West Berlin was basically around the corner and we could see the wall. But it was a distant planet. Mm. You know, it was the same like the States or France. We couldn't go there, although it was basically just a meter away from us. So um, in that sense, it was um, a very different upbringing. Um, Did you find yourself full of yearning for the Western lifestyle, what you knew of it? Or did you just accept that this was life? Um, well, it's hard to miss something that you don't really know. You saw a bit of it in television, obviously, illegally. We did, we did. And then, you know, the, my granny was allowed to go to the West, like um, pensioners were go to, allowed to go 30 days uh, a year. Um, and then she brought like Western yogurt and, you know, fresh fruit and um, the uh, nah, the records I loved, you know, she would smuggle in kind of uh, hiding in her suitcase. And um, so, yeah, we I think we... We suffered from the non-existing freedom, not uh, craving particularly to live in that Western system because we didn't know that much about it, really. But yes, we want to, I think the majority and then, I mean, that's why the revolution happened and the change happened. Uh, the majority of people wanted freedom, um, freedom to assembly, freedom of speech, freedom to travel. And yes, a um, lot of people also wanted um, the goods that you could buy in the West and to see the, the, the bands playing, um, you know, that we all love to listen to music to and we could never see them. So things like that. It's nearly 30 years ago. Mm. So do you remember when the wall came down? Oh, do you absolutely. remember the atmosphere around it? Oh, absolutely. I was 21 at the time. And um, since I was in, in Berlin, um, we immediately took off and left for the border and we crossed the border late Did at you? night. Yeah. The same night? Yeah. And it was uh, fantastic. And I still remember, like, my, my parents didn't dare to come with me. Um, I went with my then boyfriend um, and they didn't dare to come with me. They were too afraid. And um, then we went to the West and it was just extraordinary. I mean, you cannot, I still get goose pimples <laughs> when, I, when I talk about these things, the, this night. And um, then I called my parents from the West um, at the famous street, Kudam, um, somebody gave me, some of the Westerners, they gave me some uh, change and I called them from one of the, the uh, phone booths and um, and they were crying. And it was just, um, 
An were they crying with nerves thing. for you being over the other side or were they crying with joy? It was joy and, and uh, enthusiasm and just, I mean, my parents, you know, they were brought up at a time when it was still one country and, um, I mean, they lived through the war years and mm-hmm. then uh, when they were young and when they met each other, they travelled to West Berlin to go dancing and go to the movies and then suddenly it was closed off. Uh, and so for them, it was really reunification. For me, it was basically arriving in a new different country but for them it was coming home Mm. so they were extremely moved and it was uh, extremely emotional and at that point had you taken a degree in languages had you done your your university education or where were you what what point what stage were you at I was in the middle of my studies so Mm. two years into my studies and uh, then I immediately took the opportunity to apply with the um, British Council, actually. And then I went to Britain for nine months um, as a teaching assistant. Straight away? Yeah. Well, like, yeah. Summer of 1990. Yeah. Half you a year after, uni- uh, or after the wall <laughs> fell. Yeah. I was gone. Yeah. And you went to London? No, I went to a place called Metlock Bath, actually, which is close to Chesterfield. And I taught at three different schools. Um, and it was... Um, a wonderful experience, I have to say. You must have been pretty good at languages to be able to transplant yourself from East Berlin mm. to England to teach. Mm. What were you teaching? German. German? Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And was that daunting? Did you think, oh my goodness, I it don't know if I like, can do this? You know, it felt like a big adventure, really. Uh, the whole time was like a huge uh, adventure, really. And everybody was like so excited and that was a big, chance for us you know when yeah. this when this uh, thing came up and then one of my teachers told me look you know there is this flyer don't you want to apply and I applied and I got accepted and you know for someone <laughs> uh, coming from behind the curtain and then so- suddenly someone says oh yeah you're eligible you can go to Britain and we want you as a teacher there it was just incredible. And did that sense of liberation last or mm. at, at certain points do you think well this isn't all it was cracked up to be? Mm. No I think it's still there. <laughs> yeah, is it? Yeah, freedom. Yeah, absolutely. What 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 did it mean to you most? Um, the freedom of expression, yeah. um, the freedom of thought, um, the chance, obviously, also to see the world and go out there and 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 be there, um, but really this uh, uh, lack of fear of telling the wrong thing to the wrong people of being put away maybe, you know, for things you said or for people you met, um, for books you read, um, for movies you watched. Mm-hmm. Um, and to to have that freedom and to have that fear gone, which was mm-hmm. there, although I described like a normal life, but it was always there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I still find the most um, amazing part of what happened. To me personally. I'm curious about, uh, you know, we have an ongoing debate about socialism versus capitalism Mm. and, you know, when it all goes too far and everything. Are there aspects of that socialist life that you miss? Mm. Well, um, yes. (laughs) In a way, there are a a few things. Maybe I wouldn't say miss, but um, I find it a bit deplorable that they are, that they have changed. Uh, One is, for instance, um, the way people 
um, lived with each other, really. Um, because there was, for instance, in East Germany, um, because people didn't, um, the, the um, gap between the earnings weren't that big. So my father was a veterinary doctor, but he didn't basically earn much more than the builder who lived next door. Um, so there wasn't this social gap. And in our sports club, for instance, a sailing club, which, you know, like sounds very posh. And it wasn't posh at all, you know. And like our best friends were just normal uh, workers. Um, and uh, they sometimes mock my father for being, you know, the doctor kind of thing. But um, also, like if you look at the newly built uh, housing complexes, um, the professor lived together with the normal worker from the factory and the student and, you know, whatever. So, um, and it led to some sort of also solidarity amongst each other. Um, and money wasn't a topic, really. Really, it's... Um, and that that has sort of changed a little bit. If, if you look at those housing complexes nowadays, all, everybody who can afford it moved out and they bought a little house somewhere, you know, where it's nice outside. And I'm not, you know, reproaching it to them, but it just changed the social kind of fabric a little. Yes. And um, and that is a pity in a way, I, I think. But there are other aspects as well, and lots been talked about childcare and all that. Yes. Um, and um, so there were some aspects that that really uh, are worthwhile looking at. Actually, you gave a talk a few months ago, attended by my terrific Irish Times colleague Rona McCreevy, in which you. What really uh, appealed to him was you're talking about East Germany and saying that it was far ahead of West Germany then in terms of women's rights. Mm. Can you talk a bit about that? Because mm. we always think that we were the most oppressed nation mm. uh, from the point of view of, of misogyny and non-rights and that sort of thing. Mm. But I gather East East mm. Germany was way ahead of West Germany at that stage. Mm. It obviously depends on what school of thinking you come from, whether you say it's far ahead or not. Yes. Um, but uh, let me describe a little bit how I, uh, how I experienced it when I grew up. I... And preparing for this talk, I again thought about it. Literally, I don't know any woman that did not work when I grew up. Um, it was extremely rare um, that women would stay at home. Um, like my mom stayed at home because my brother wasn't well when he was a child. She stayed at home for a couple of years, but then obviously she went back to work. So it was a normal thing. And to me, it would have never, ever occurred that there would be a a life of staying at home and, and not working and not be part of the workforce. So there are uh, a number of reasons for that. Um, first of all, it was, um, I think, at the beginning of, of East Germany, uh, an economic necessity for a lot of women to go to work. On the other hand, um, it was also needed economically by the state. They wanted uh, people in the, the women in the workforce. On the other hand, it was also uh, part of the socialist ideology. And it, it was part of the socialist workers' movement, like in the 19th century and 20th, beginning of the 20th century, that women and men are equal. And um, if you look at the, the, the workers' movement and the socialist, the communist movement, like even before um, or at the beginning of the 20th century, there were very prominent women, you know, um, Rosa Luxemburg, later on Clara Zetkin, you know, I mean, they were very, very famous and they were very strong and outspoken. And that was sort of part and parcel of the socialist ideology. So within the, the constitution in 49, it said women and men are equal. And in 1950, they passed a law um, basically giving the same rights to women and to men. And, and that um, sort of 
uh, led to women really being part and parcel of, of the society. What kind of laws were they up to 1950? What could women not do? Um, well, that was war times and it was very yes. different Nazi regime and, and everything. And it was like the classical role for women to stay at home and uh, you know, uh, look after the family. Um, and uh, and then obviously, but also during the, the, um, like the first years after the war, women were needed to rebuild the country. But still, it was this very traditional um, thinking. So um, in East Germany, they... They really took a different road, yeah, and they tried to accommodate um, women also in the sense that um, they they had the same rights. Um, for instance, like in West Germany, till 1977, women needed the approval of the husband to work. Till 1977, and people forget that, yeah. So I mean, they were allowed to work by law, but it said only if they can accommodate um, and satisfy the household needs. And that was basically something for the husband to decide whether they really fulfilled that, their needs there. Until uh, like late in the 60s, they couldn't open a bank account without the uh, approval of the husband um, and things like that. And that was very different in, in East Germany. Uh, another topic is obviously um, the, the question of um, abortion. So um, and and uh, things related to that, like in East Germany, the pill was introduced in '65, and it was uh, given to women by prescription, but free of charge. Um, that was quite different in West Germany. Um, abortion was uh, introduced, like you you could um, have an abortion in East Germany till '72 uh, on indication, like medical indication or something. But then it was changed in '72 to basically um, a little bit what Ireland is now trying to introduce. You know, 12 weeks free um, for everyone, really. Um, and uh, starting with the age of 16, which I read up and I didn't, couldn't believe it, but it was very early. So, um, and in West Germany, um, the indication model was introduced, I think, in 75 only. And uh, now in, 90, in 95, after reunification, um, they introduced uh, a new law and it's, uh, it's very strange um, – um, or it might sound very strange, uh, abortion in all over Germany now is actually illegal by the law, but by the penal code, but it is under certain circumstances, it's uh, allowed when you uh, do it within the first 12 weeks and you had counseling by a doctor and you had three days to think about it and you still um, stay stick Which with the decision. Which is very similar to our proposed. Yes. Yeah. New way of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, it was very different in in yes. the east, and so, um, and and plus, you know, women going to work, you know, they they uh, had a lot of um, um, possibilities for the children. For instance, there was a, a broad net of kindergartens. So, of course, um, you, you had the baby. You could take a, a year off from work. Your job was secure. Um, the the year was paid. You got your pay the whole the whole year. Full pay. Full pay. Um, and then when you went back to work, um, there was a kindergarten and the kid would be in kindergarten. State funded. Absolutely, yeah. Well, you paid a little, like tiny, I don't know, 50 cents for a meal or something so that the kids could get something to eat there. Um, having said that, it wasn't all paradise because, you know, it's some people... more and more attractive, though. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't all, you know, like paradise because it, it also put a lot of pressure, obviously, on women um, uh, because women there was still... 
the ones looking after the Doing household. Doing the chores. <laughs> yeah. Minding the babies. Yes. So in that sense, the culture didn't didn't change all that much. Not that much, no. No. The um, men were it, still the, yeah. the, the the head of the household and Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Mm. What is that? I don't know. And there are exceptions. Like um, I I was extremely fond of my father because he took a lot of time for us kids and he looked after us and he would even do some cooking sometimes. Um, so I, I think it also depended from family to family. But um, but yeah, I think those changes take time, you know, to realize that um, that the father has a very decisive role. Also, like in science, um, people didn't really, or research didn't really talk much about that, did they? Mm-hmm. How important the role of the father is for the family and all mm-hmm. that. So these things develop with time. But um, but yeah, I, on the other hand, I also sometimes think that we women also feel we are the better child carers and we ha- take, um, um, we, we, we don't take it lightly if the father tries to step in and <laughs> and wants to look after the kids uh, a bit more maybe. I don't know. I, I wouldn't have uh, uh, wanted my husband to stay at home and I would go to work after the babies were born. Um, so I stayed at home just a couple of months and then I went back to work. But, you know, even then, um, and I worked part-time and he was working full-time, but I felt kind of responsible maybe, loved the kids, <laughs> wanted to be there for them. And I don't think... Um, it's easy to get rid of that in your DNA. No. And I think that has to be acknowledged always. Mm. Uh, but where were you when you had your children? You got married at what age? Um, I got married when I was 20... Hang on. Uh, 25. 25. So you're quite <laughs> yeah. young. 24, 25, yeah. Was yeah. he from East Berlin? Yes, he was. So you stuck with your own, if you like. <laughs> yes, yeah, I did. I did, yeah. And you, where, and you went to live in... West Germany at that um, stage, or what would yeah, have been? Yeah, when West we Berlin? when we married, we already lived in West Germany because um, we'd finished the studies and then applied um, with the foreign service and got accepted. Um, strangely enough, and uh, then moved to Bonn, and we had the babies in Bonn. Um, but like when the second, um, when our daughter was born, a second child, uh, my husband shortly afterwards was posted to Singapore, and then I followed him to Singapore later on. So it was like very close. So we didn't stay long with the kids in, in Bonn. So how many children? Two. Two. And how old are they now? 22 and 21. Right. So they're, I was going, to say, they're, up. I was going to say they're over the hard bit, but actually mm. I've well. discovered. <laughs> yeah. <you know>. Well, <laughs> we still need a couple of years, I think. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, more than a couple, let me assure you. Um, I, 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 Ronan was saying that during that talk, you, mm. you mentioned that when you moved to the West, um, and you had your children, people were aghast that you wanted to work mm-hmm. and to put your children into a kindergarten, mm-hmm. which to you was as natural as, as breathing. Yeah. But apparently in West Germany, they were quite surprised by this. Absolutely. Yeah. And to me, that was, again, a very big surprise. And I still remember what I felt like when I walked out of that office. At the time, apparently in Bonn, there were seven places in crashes, like for the babies. And um, Gregor was eight months uh, when I wanted to go back to work. And um, the lady asked me, you know, uh, are you single? And I said, no. Is your husband unemployed? And I said, no. Are you unemployed? No. So then she looked at me and said, what do you want here? You know, go home, look after your child kind of thing. She didn't say that last word, uh, that last sentence, but that was basically the gist of it. And I was like, you know, coming from where I came from, that was 
amazing. <laughs> let, let me put it like this. And um, so then I, I looked after, uh, I, I looked for a place um, with a, uh, a mom that is looking after kids at home and she took in a couple of kids and then we did that and Gregor stayed there for like four hours, five hours a day and he loved it and um, she would play with him, you know, and do little things and I'm not very good, for instance, at craft work and things like that. So it was wonderful to have someone to do these things. And um, yeah, but that was uh, very strange. Um, for me, and uh, I presume then you 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 went away. You went to you followed your husband to Singapore mm-hmm. uh, with the two children, and then you were adapting to a whole new culture. Mm-hmm. How was that? That was how many years after after the wall came down. What? Um, well, we left um, for Singapore in ninety seven. Um, so that was seven years after reunification. Eight years after so the wall came down. All this extraordinary stuff happened to you in the mm-hmm. space of. Seven years. Yeah, you went to teach in Britain. Mm. You were, then got married. You had two children. Mm. I joined the foreign service. You joined the foreign the Western, service, not the Western, Western, Western foreign. Foreign. Yes, yeah. And then Singapore. Mm. Uh, yeah. What was that like? Um, again, an am- amazing experience, and uh, like for my parents, that was like the other end of the world. Really, it was so distant and so far away. And for us, again, it was just a wonderful adventure and an experience. We loved it. Um, It was wonderful to be um, in a completely different culture and to learn so much about the people and the history and um, the politics and all that. So it was uh, it was wonderful. And the kids were great. You know, they loved it as well. Um, It's always warm. (laughs) And uh, it's uh, it's been a wonderful three and a half years, really. And I started working there um, as well. I only stayed at home for like half a year till Nina, who was born like honestly three weeks before my husband left um, for Singapore. Um, uh, So when she was half a year, I went back to work and then we did something extremely nice. Uh, My husband and I shared a job. So um, he was at home in the mornings and I was at home in the afternoons and uh, we were both looking after the kids and that was fantastic. Idyllic. Mm. And what an excellent foreign service you have. Mm, I presume, really cool. is, it, is it still that way? Do Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Spouses can share jobs like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're both members of the foreign service, obviously. Yes. Yeah, you can do that, yeah. And it's wonderful. It was fantastic um, for the two of us because um, I didn't lose out on my job experience, obviously. <gasps> and um, it was very good for the embassy because we both... Um, worked overtime <laughs> um, but it was also fantastic for the children because they had so much time with my husband and they had so much time with me and um, I think that is also one of the reasons why they are still very close to my husband as well Yes. so he was never out of the picture kind of thing so that was great As far as you know does that apply to other foreign services? Um, still- yeah there are a couple oh, yeah. There. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's not uh, that but at the time we were like the second couple only in the foreign service who did that at the time. But now um, you find a lot of uh, couples who are doing that. So then you went from, did you did you go straight to Tehran from, yeah. from Singapore? Yeah, we did. Talk about switching cultures. What mm. was that like? Well, I have to say that um, we um, absolutely um, loved our time in Iran. Um, and why is that? Because it's been so enriching. And again, it's what I was saying, you know, I mean, you... you, you you learn so much. You meet so many incredibly interesting people. Um, you get there with all those stereotypes in your head. 
um, you read things about it. And at the time with the little children, I didn't have much time to look very deeply into what is going on. But, um, you know, you had your ideas and your setup kind of in your mind. And then it turned out to be so different. Um, yes, some of the things you had known were true. But then in the, on the other hand, it's been so, so different. Um, and that's been extremely enriching. And uh, and again, we, we really had a fabulous time. And one of my husband's dreams is to go back as an ambassador to Tehran yes, and sir. work there. Yeah, it, it's it's just also such an interesting country because it's so broken. It's um, the history is so, so rich. And um, it's it's um, it has so many different uh, layers, and to understand that and to see that is just um, is really amazing. It really is. So it, it, it just for us politically, it was interesting. Culturally, it was interesting. We made wonderful friends, and we learned so much. So that uh, made it um, a great place to be for us. Did you feel constrained as a woman there? Um, yes. Um, I mean, you had to cover up. I had to wear a shawl and I had to wear um, a, a coat. And obviously, uh, people, um, well, you don't, uh, I remember this one incident where I sort of sat too closely to my husband in a tea shop and um, they they told us off. So we had to sort of move away from each other and things like that. But then on the other hand, I mean, people are very friendly to women. Iranian f women are very outspoken and very self-confident. 60% of the students were women. You know, they were, you know, really tough girls. And, um, and at home, you know, it's the women basically who take the lead role kind of thing. Um, and people were very polite to me um, as a woman. Um, and when, when you say so, that about the women at home being being the ones in charge, I'm afraid we're, we're harking back to the culture of mm. East Germany where mm. there was actual equality mm. in every single sense, mm. but in the culture. Mm. So we're back to that being boss in the home, you know, or not the boss, but actually mm. doing everything. Mm. Yeah. Um, are we ever going to fix ourselves from that, that point of view? Well... Let's hope so. <laughs> um, but it is something that we have to debate with each other. Mm. Um, when I look at um, the younger generation, um, then I, I see that there is uh, even um, already a development um, that uh, the men participate even more in the daily life. Um, uh, like nowadays also in Germany, we introduced a couple of uh, years back um, um, paternal leave as well for the fathers so they can also stay at home with the kids what is, for a what couple is, what of is weeks. The, what is, yes, oh sorry, how many weeks? Um, well, it's three months, two months. I think it's something like that. Um, and uh, so the, the woman can stay at home for like 14 months and then the husband can also stay at home for two or three months. So there is a change going on and also um, like I, I did HR before I came here um, in the ministry and um, women are much more vocal about their needs also um, with their husbands. So we had a lot of husbands coming in saying, oh, no, we won't go to that place or that place because my wife is uh, objecting to it or, you know, I need more time um, for the kids and um, they work uh, less hours sometimes or things like that. So um, I think the, 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 you can see that with the next generation, there is more equality also in partnerships rising because women simply demand it, but also because the men also want to join in much more, you yes. know, and they want to have time with their children as well. 
You were here for the for the uh, the referendum on on uh, repealing the eighth mm-hmm. uh, amendment. Mm. Uh, were you fascinated by that? Were you surprised by it? What did you make of it all? Mm. I found it an extremely interesting time to mm. be here um, to follow all the discussions. Um, then to go around, it was a time when I also traveled quite a lot in the country and um, speaking to people all over the place, like also in rural areas and or here in, in, in cities, um, I found that very interesting. And I was in a way um, amazed by the opinion polls a little because then what I heard from people was so much closer to the actual result at the end um, than, than the polls. Um, and um, so it was a, a really interesting time to be there. I was, I was also at the RDS for the count, which was, again, um, a very good uh, experience, you know, to see um, how women reacted to the result and, and how the politicians reacted and all that. So um, it's been an, a very, very interesting time to be here. Did you notice our, our, our method of voting, that we still use the pencil and paper? Yeah. Do you, you, you we don't do that as well. Have you got that in Germany? Yeah, of course. That is very sensible. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. assumed you'd have gone all, all electronic. No, 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 not at all. No, no, no. We still go behind the booth and make our cross and then fold the leaflet and then put it back in. Doesn't the, that in look increasingly sensible as time goes yes. on? I think we should go back to <laughs> pencil and paper with a lot of things, actually. Mm. Ireland was one, of, was one of the first places you visited mm. after the fall of the, mm. uh, of the Berlin Wall. What was what what were you doing at that stage? Were you touring Europe and sort of celebrating your liberation, or what were you thinking? Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, we went on an interview tour. Um, my now husband, then boyfriend, um, suggested that, and um, we had actually just met, really. Um, but <laughs> then uh, we uh, we set out on that interview tour in summer 1990. So that was six months after the wall had come down, and. Um, uh, we bought that interval ticket and I strongly advise everybody <laughs> to um, explain about that to their kids because it's been fantastic. So we toured Europe and then part of it was Ireland. And we actually spent five days in Ireland. We only had four weeks all in all, but we spent five days here and went to Dublin, Limerick, Spittle, Galway um, because we wanted to be there and see see the place. And both of us were studying English, so going to Britain and going to Ireland sort of was clear, but we also went to lots of other places. So you went to Spiddle? Mm. That was nice. It was a bit drizzly, but it was <laughs> nice. <laughs> Poor Spiddle, but an excellent place to go if you, if you had future ambitions to learn, to learn the Irish language. Um, now, getting up to the present day, you're here in Ireland with your husband and children, are you? No, I'm no. not. The kids are out of the house studying, um, one in Berlin, the other one in Austria. And my husband is also um, with the Foreign Service and he's in Berlin. So we're commuting, which is uh, a challenge. How is that working out? Mm, we miss each other. And are you, are you, do you have an arrangement? I've, I've had this conversation with so many women mm. here and men. Do you have an arrangement where you fly back and forth every two yeah. weeks or something? Or how do you work? Um, well, no, but every like four to six weeks we we see each other and that's okay i mean we 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 are kind of used to it in a way because my husband previously was our ambassador to afghanistan to kabul and uh, i couldn't visit him there so he would come home like every six to eight weeks um and then spend one two weeks um in berlin and now it's basically the other way around but obviously he can come here and he does that regularly and i go to berlin regularly so so far it's working uh okay um but um we wish we'd more time Mm -hmm. with each other and yet you're both working in, in mm-hmm. uh, foreign affairs at mm-hmm. such a fantastically interesting time. Mm. 
Trump. not least with Brexit. Um, how are you faring with that? Mm. <laughs> well, um, I mean, we all are very sad about the fact that the British are leaving. Um, and I don't know if anybody would have expected that. There were very few people actually who thought that the vote would go that way. And it's it's a huge loss for the European Union. It's a huge loss, obviously, for, for, for Ireland. Um, but it is for the rest of the European Union for this big peace project um, uh, and this economic uh, viable and um, and successful project, it is uh, a big blow and it is very sad. And so uh, let's now hope for um, an outcome that uh, manages to be uh, or result in a, in a partnership that is as close as possible. This is also what we want because the British are uh, an important friend. Um, they are a member of the Security Council, so definitely, you know, an important political player um, that we need and um, and we are so like-minded in so many political mm-hmm. issues um, and our values and so it is in all our interest I think to make it work and have a relationship that uh, both of us can profit from uh, under those very sad circumstances um, that uh, they are leaving the European Union. Given your particularly interesting background um are you a bit dismayed that so much of the talk is about trade? It all sounds mm. very transactional rather than about the peace project that mm. is the European Union. Mm. I think we need to talk more with our um, populations about this peace project mm. indeed. Um, and uh, now with um, the political um, spectrums in so many countries changing um, in Germany too, mm. Um, we need to focus on that more. We need to speak more about the values. We need more about to speak about social agendas and all that um, to make people, especially the young ones, understand what a fabulous project that is, you know, and what the gains are and what we would lose if we go a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so... It is important to, to talk economics, absolutely, because mm-hmm. this is, you know, people... Mm-hmm want money and want, sure. you know, um, goods and everything. Mm. But um, I think we also need to talk uh, more about these other issues as well. It's interesting that in in uh, the UK, when it, the referendum, that it was, by f- it was overwhelmingly the elderly who voted mm-hmm. to leave, which fascinates me mm. because they're the ones who who should remember, have the closest memories, I suppose, of war in Europe. Have you thought that through and, and, and do you wonder what's going on there? Mm. Um, I, I haven't been to Britain for a long time. Um, so I'm not an expert on, you know, the psyche of um, elderly British citizens. Um, but apparently, as in so many other countries, um, issues like migration, issues like um, having the feeling or, or fears resulting from that, um, uh, having the feeling to have lost out economically in certain areas and certain regions um, is something that we can witness all over, um, not only Europe, but in so many places all over the world. And um, I think well, at least that is what people say, that that was, uh, were some of the reasons why people decided um, against um, that project. Um, but other than that, I'm really not an expert on, on the British soul. Yeah. 
No, because Germany of all countries, um, you've had experience of of having guest workers for Mm -hmm. decades. Um, Angela Merkel invited famously a million people into the country in the last few years. Have you, have you, uh, is Germany trying to balance that mm. now? Is, is, is there, have you reached a moment now that the AFD is on the mm. rise, I'm afraid? Mm. Uh, is it, is, is, is that poking a hole in the German psyche now in that sense of its own security mm. and where it's going? Mm. Um, let me first of all say that I still believe that that was an incredible humanitarian gesture um, by our chancellor, by our government. Um, and uh, but it has led indeed to a change of the political spectrum in Germany, um, as you were saying um, correctly. You know, the AFD um, uh, is now in part of the parliament and with like impressively strong numbers in the polls as well. Um, and yes, um, the debate uh, is there still how we are going to tackle this. Uh, and Germany now also in uh, debates and, and discussions with a lot of countries in Europe is trying to find ways of how to accommodate um, the needs we all have, um, which are very different from one country to another. And um, we we are trying to make our external borders safer. We are trying to um, look at um, how we can peop- uh, can bring back people who are, have no right for asylum in, in Germany um, but on the other hand, I think it is still a very important task for our society, I might say, in Europe to um, uh, make integration work and to welcome people and help them integrate. And Germany, and you were alluding to the, the, the Turkish Gastarbeiter, the guest workers that um, came um, to into Germany ever since after the war, really in the fifties. Um, at the time, the belief was that they would go back. You know, they would come and work, and then they go back, and they never did. And they had kids, and they had grandchildren, and um, the the society wasn't prepared for that I think you know and now we learned and we know that people stay and we need to make this work we need to help them learn the language we need to help them understand our system how our democracy works what are our values and all that and then give them the chance to make their life um, in, in our respective countries it is a challenge you need money you need people who are involved and and to want to make it work people from the from the business community but also the educational system and all that so it is a challenge but as the chancellor say said um, I also think we can make it are there lessons to be learned from the past are you worried by the rise of the far right around Europe hmm. I think, as I said, we need to take seriously the uh, the fears of the people. Mm. Uh, we need to, as think, a society... Do you, think, do you think that's been done? Do you think... Because I, funnily enough, I had an argument with somebody last week mm. in England about this. They were saying we're not allowed to say anything. It's mm. all political correctness. Mm. I mean, the Boris Johnson story about you know, mm. calling the women yeah. in barkers yeah. looking like letterboxes and bank mm. robbers and all that sort of thing. And they were saying, why can't we say what we think? Mm. Have you learned in Germany, are you, have you learned lessons about that? I mean, are you acutely conscious of language and how you approach these things? And are you accused of overly political 
correctness. Mm. I think there was a time when that was the case. Um, again, due to um, the rise of more right-leaning parties and um, due to, I think, also what we witness on social media, um, like people sticking to their bubbles and, uh, you know, exchanging views there only, um, uh, that has changed, kind of loosened up a little bit. So, but we still get that. Just recently, we had a debate because one of um, one of the politicians said something uh, which was heavily criticized uh, in the context of asylum and everything. Um, so there is a debate, and people were saying, "Oh, you cannot say this. This is really instigating uh, um, anger and 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 hatred and and what have you." Um, so there is a debate there. Um, I think we all have to be careful. And um, uh, explain um, and need more factual debate <laughs> about these things. Yes. Which factual. seems to be a challenge. Factual debate is most certainly a challenge. <laughs> yeah. um, let's talk about austerity and mm. the role of Germany in mm. our mm. bad years, mm-hmm. in the, especially in the last, last what? 10 mm. years mm-hmm. uh, and the accusations that Germany was the cause of it all. Are mm. you confronted with that question on mm. a daily basis? Mm. Not on a daily basis, <laughs> uh, luckily enough, but uh, but regularly, yes. Um, uh, but I'm more than happy to, to talk about that. Oh, do tell us what your answer is when people say you made us poor. Yeah. You, 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 you loaned us all this money and then, yeah. and then you, you were reckless about it and then you asked for it all back. Yeah. Well, two things, um, two parts of an answer there. Um, first of all, I think it is very important to understand where Germany came from at the time. Um, like with reunification being very, very expensive um, for us as a country. Um, we then were at the end of the 90s, what they called the poor men of Europe. The sick men of Europe. Um, the sick men, yes. the sick men yes. of Europe, exactly. Um, and uh, there were a lot of cuts also in, in Germany, not in, in any way in the, to the extent that that was then true for Ireland or Greece or Spain and others, but it um, it were cuts there. And the, for instance, the Social Democrats still today suffer politically from those things that they introduced to make the economy uh, to get the going again. Um, but it was very hard um, for the pe- for people. So that is where we came from, um, and we we had big structural reforms and all that. That is where we came from when the crash hit Europe and the Euro the Euro um, uh, problems happened. Um, so with this mindset, um, to expect people to then go and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we just pump money into others and we don't expect anything for it, no structural change, no nothing, would have been a hard sell for politicians back home in Germany. It would just not have been possible. People wouldn't have understood that. So that is one thing. The other thing is... Um, I'm I'm sort of um, a little bit surprised, not too much, but a little bit that um, it is always, you know, portrayed as if Angela Merkel was the only one in the room um, uh, in the European Union or in the uh, European Central Bank or let alone in the International Monetary Fund. Uh, who took those decisions. <laughs> and yes, yeah. obviously, Germany was a strong player, but we weren't the only one. Um, and at the time, uh, much less maybe than we are today. Um, and so, um, well, 
I, I, I think one really has to um, give credit to the fact that there were many more and other players involved and that the decision wasn't taken by one woman only. <laughs> That's a fair point about the one woman. Um, but do you, is, is, is there any sense of guilt at all about the banks wheeling out all that money to the Irish who did take it um, and then demanding it back and leaving us in a, in, a, in a heap of misery? Within the German public? Yeah. Um, was there a sense that there was recklessness by the bank, by, by, by the German banks? Um, there is a sense nowadays that uh, there might have been other ways of handling the crisis. Um, and uh, the debate is definitely um, there. But then a lot of people who were involved at the time say, look, this is what the best we could think of at the time. And we believe that this is the way we have to go. But nowadays, in hindsight, we see that certain things should have been handled differently and that certain things were going too far too harsh to whatever and uh, but it was the first time anything like that happened and we just weren't prepared for it so we tried and um, that's that's something that is being debated also in the German public yeah. that's great so if it happens again it'd be much nicer to us <laughs> it won't happen again um, Let's work on that. We, let, let's work on it indeed um, let's talk about the German psyche and how you're perceived. Mm. Do people see you as stern, disciplined, humorless? In Ireland? Yeah. You tell me. <laughs> well, when people you? ask you questions, mm. are they kind of surprised that you actually, that you can sit there so relaxed and mm. laugh and laugh, you'd be self-deprecating mm. and mm. appear to understand us very well and you're working very hard to understand as you're mm. learning the language, which I think is a huge thing to do. Um, but there is that there is this stereotype yeah. of Germany, isn't there? Yeah. Well, I think so. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that is not only true here in Ireland. But this is how we are perceived. I think worldwide, you know, very hardworking um, uh, and um, stern, uh, very pragmatic, always very punctual, and um, you know, um, not so much fun-loving and uh, outgoing and hospitable and things like that. Um, I think that is a misconception because uh, we are much more colourful, I think, and diverse than people still mm. think we are. And it also depends hugely on the, the region in Germany, you know. Yes, people in the northern parts, they might not be as, um, how should I say it, eloquent um, you know, but more a bit of reserved, maybe. I mean, they're very eloquent, but maybe a little bit more reserved and quieter and things like that. Whereas like in the southern parts, people are very outgoing and, and very lively and funny and what have you. And, and, and even, I mean, I come from the north and I think we have also a brilliant sense of humor. Um, it's different, but, um, it is, it is there. And so, I think that is also one of the main things that I would love to see during my tenure here, that we understand each other better and that we get to know each other better. Um, if you look at um, what Germans think about the Irish, it's like you all sit in a pub, um, drink Guinness and play wonderful music all day, basically. So, I mean, well, that's exaggerating. unfortunate and would be lovely. <laughs> uh, exaggerating but, but that is, that is how, how we appear to, to Germans. Well, yeah, in... in, in I think that's the stereotypes they have in yes. their mind and they see the beautiful countryside and the landscape and all that is definitely there. But yeah, 
you have those stereotypes. Um, and uh, that is not the Irish average person either. So as we are not what you, what a lot of Irish, I think, think about the German. So it's always difficult to say the Irish or the German because yeah. we are all so individual and we are all so different with different upbringings and different backgrounds and different likes and stuff like that. Um, are you familiar with the German ambassador who just before he left some years ago issued an absolutely shocking version of his perception of the Irish. I heard about it. Did you hear about it? Uh, you don't think any of those things. Well, it was a very different time, so I don't know um, exactly um, also the circumstances and everything, but um, I know that it caused a lot of stir and that could have and should have been avoided. Well, a lot of people actually agreed with them, oddly enough. But <laughs> They do today. Yeah, they do today. I read that, yeah. Yes. Just, so you were making it your... So, so you, you, you have a four-year term in Ireland. Yes. Which started last autumn. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're going to get out and about and travel and make yourself known to schools and communities and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And are you available? Can people ring the embassy and ask for Her Excellency to come along to meetings and... Oh, I absolutely would love that. So please um, do feel invited. Um, follow us on Facebook, see what we are doing and um, just send in uh, an email or give us a call. I'd love to go around. Um, I'm, I'm doing this quite intensively and I just love it to meet people and, you know, spread the word uh, about what is what Germany is like today, how important Europe is for us and um, that we want to be a partner for Ireland, um, a like-minded partner, that we need Ireland uh, as well as, a, as an important partner within the European Union and that we want to trade, um, that we are a wonderful place for doing business, for actually going on a holiday as well, which a lot of people don't have in their mind as well, um, but really to, um, to, to uh, portray the chances that are there for the two sides um, to get to know each other better, understand each other better, and then intensify um, our contacts on so many levels, be it political, be it parliamentary, be it um, cultural, be it business. So there is a broad variety where coming from a very good relationship, I think we can do more and I wish um, to, to help um, a little bit in that endeavour. Well, I certainly hope people take you up on that invitation. The last hour has been very illuminating and interesting and funny even at times. <laughs> and as you said yourself in your YouTube address, Goramila Mahagat und danke, Your Excellency. Thank you so much for having me, Goramila Mahagat, and all the best for the future. Thank Slang you. of all. Well, that was fascinating, I think. And that's it for today. My thanks to Your Excellency for speaking to me today. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you do want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast. Or you can email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes. Give us a review and tell all your friends about it. The podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 